Morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July. Oh, we could do a little bit better than that. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. There, oh, yes. Uh, it may be hard for you to believe, but about nine months ago, as I was planning this series for the book of Judges, I realized that Sunday this year was going to be on July 4th. And I thought to myself, well, you know, churches aren't supposed to have patriotic messages. We're supposed to have Christ-centered messages. But if the two coincide, it might be a great opportunity to just celebrate the freedoms that we have in Christ, ultimately. And so as I'm reading through the book of Judges, I said, you know, there is no better chapter to preach on July 4th than what we're looking at this morning in Judges chapter 16. Because in Judges chapter 16, we see not only the physical freedom that God brings the nation of Israel through Samson, but we see Samson himself becoming free from the bondage of his sin and finally calling out to God to own up to being the judge that he was called to be. And that freedom has a cost, whether that's Spartacus paying with his life, whether that's William Wallace paying with his life in 1305, or whether that's the Americans putting their life on the line on July 4th, 1776, and every day since then, the cost for freedom is high. And it is no higher, no more costly than the Lord's sacrifice for us. And it is beautiful that we get to celebrate not only our nation's liberties and freedoms today, but we get to celebrate Samson's victory we get to celebrate Christ's victory. We get to celebrate our victory in Christ today, of all days, all of that built into one single day. Amen? Amen. We have an entire chapter to get through, so we're going to get started right away in chapter 16, uh, all the way, and whew, we're going to get through verse 31 in one day. So we're going to start in the first few verses, and it gives us the setting of Samson's continual struggle. So far, what has Samson struggled with in chapter 14 and 15? Women. His eye is wandering, his eye is wanting, and he's always getting himself into trouble, not thinking with his head, but thinking with his heart, first and foremost, and it leads him into danger after danger after danger, compromise after compromise, overreacting, overreacting, and eventually he reaches chapter 16. And no surprise... His thorn in the flesh, his struggle comes full circle, and it is immediate, and it's probably the story you remember the most. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute. Samson already, I'm telling you, run away. And he went into her, had relations with her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come. Now, all of this is taking place in, from our perspective near the reservoir, so really on the west side of town. Okay, not near Jerusalem or the other populated areas of Israel, way on the Mediterranean Sea, way on the west side of our town and the west side of Israel. So he had relations with the prostitute, uh, Samson, and the Gazites were told this, and Samson has come here. So the entire land of Gaza was just beaming with fear, first and foremost, that Samson was here. And they surrounded the place, that is the city that he was in, and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait until the light of the morning. 
then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So the people of Gaza are freaking out. Samson's here, just slept with a prostitute, and will kill him in the morning right when he gets up and leaves the city. And Samson beats them all to it in a really boss fashion by not even worrying about the people surrounding the city. He just simply takes the city gates and carries them. How heavy do you think the city gates were? Your guess is as good as every Bible commentator. Who knows how heavy they were? I can tell you that they would have been massive because those are the only city gates that the city had. So they would have been huge, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, and he ripped them out of the ground. How easy is it for you just simply to rip one of the doors off, the hinges? Pretty hard, pretty tough. Uh, Samson did it, not because he was muscular and strong and buff and had worked out, but because God gave him strength. Even though he probably looked like a weakling, God gave him strength. Now, God was not condoning his action, but God is setting him up for great victory. But he has that ongoing struggle. Again, with his eyes falling to temptation, it looks pretty, she looks awesome, let's sleep with her, and boom, it gets him into trouble yet again. Almost gets killed. You would think maybe by now Samson would have learned his lesson. Listen, I almost got ambushed and killed, but he doesn't. In the next set of verses, four through six, we see the same thing happening again. And I guess one of the lessons that we can gather from this is that when we struggle with a sin that's very particular to us, maybe our friends don't struggle with it, but we struggle with it, whatever that might be, anger, lying, lust, envy, jealousy, pride, whatever it might be, don't we tend to fall back on that sin and it happens to us again and we tell ourselves, never again, I'm never going to let myself look at this again or feel like this again or react like this again, I've got to control it. I need to have victory over it. I need to have freedom from it. And lo and behold, maybe two or three days are power days, and we cycle through it, and we don't fall to that temptation. And then before you know it, bam, once again, we get blindsided with doubt and envy and jealousy and anger and lust and hatred and depression. And we thought we had victory over it, but it comes again, and we fall to it. And sometimes we fall to it again and again and again. If there's any solace or comfort in that, Samson has the same problem. And Samson is considered a great man of faith, praised in Hebrews 11 as someone to follow in faith. So if Samson struggles with it, then you are in good company if you struggle with it, as every believer struggles with it. But some are afraid to admit it because it is embarrassing. Samson simply has his life completely on display. So you see all the beautiful faith moments as well as all the warts and struggles and pains and falling that he does. Real experiences from a real person of faith. So in verse 4, maybe things have changed since he almost narrowly escaped a city wanting to kill him, but no. And after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, again, out west, whose name was Delilah. 
And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, seduce him. I don't think, from what we know about Samson, I don't think there's going to be a tough thing for her to do. Samson seems to be seduced very quickly and easily just by walking down the road. But Delilah, all the Philistine leaders came to him and said, seduce him by <laughs> what means we, and, uh, and see where his strength lies and by what means we can overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give each of you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah, Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. I don't know if there's a redeeming factor about Delilah, but at least she is like straight to the point. All right? Hey, Samson, we know we're going to have a relationship. Let's get, let's get that out of the way. But most importantly, tell me how to bind you. Where does your strength from? We want to overpower you. How, how do we do that? And I think Samson, again, his eyes and his heart and his lust probably overtakes him, and he probably is going to give in to giving her an answer. Let's see. Verse 7. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, see, that already tells me if they were in the inner chamber, he's already fallen to that temptation of being with another woman, not his wife, who is already dead, who he really was never married to, but in his own mind. So the Philistines... Then in verse 8, now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, obviously waking him out of a sound sleep. And he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. They're both playing games with each other. She's pulling at his temptation for lust, and he is just simply outright lying. I'm not going to give you any secrets. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, in, in human terms, bowstrings that are still wet, which are sinews of animal, are incredibly strong. And ropes are incredibly strong, especially new ones. They haven't been worn or frayed. They are indeed the strongest they will ever be. That happened once before when the tribe of Judah, remember last chapter, tried to bring Samson to the Philistines, and he said, oh, wrap me up with cords, and he just broke them, the ropes. So maybe they did not hear of that story of Samson in the previous chapter. Could have been months, could have been years before this time. But nonetheless, he repeats the same thing. Tie me with fresh ropes. And it makes sense. Fresh ropes, very strong, no fraying, no weak points. they got to be able to hold him. But remember, his strength is not found in his muscles. His strength is not because he is buff or a strong man or a trickster. His strength is not because he's been working out and he is really a fine specimen of a man with strength and lean muscles. That has nothing to do with it. It's God who gives him strength. Not his physical appearance, his genetics, 
his working out, his eating habits, his health habits, none of that matters. It's God that matters in Samson's life. But he tells her, a couple ropes that never been used, I'll become weak and be like any other man. Verse 12, so Delilah took new, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. The Philistines are upon you, Samson, obviously being woken up again in the middle of the sleep. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. This has happened twice now. Men lying in ambush, Samson saying, this is how you control me, Samson breaking free of that. I imagine the moment that those ropes and those bowstrings broke and snapped, what happened to the men at the inner chamber? If they were like me, I'd be running the opposite direction. I will be totally brave if he's bound. I will walk up to any dog behind a fence. But once that dog that could be barking and yelping and showing its teeth, but once I notice that, oh, the gate's open, boop, I'm out of there. Because that gate, that fence shows safety, the binding of Samson shows safety, but once that's gone, all bets are off. Who knows what's going to happen? So I imagine the reason why we don't see these guys dying in the story is because they were very human and they hightailed it out of there. I'm out of there. Done. I'm not sticking around. Thought we had an advantage. We no longer have an advantage. And now we have to panic and run. And again, oh, Delilah, you could have made 1,100 pieces of silver. A lot of money. A lot of money. But Samson, you're not cooperating. And so in verse 13, Delilah finally says, now Delilah said to Samson, until now. And I imagine she probably, it doesn't say it in the text, but I imagine she has this little whininess to her voice. Just, I, I'm just guessing. Until now, you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. I imagine she's got this just, this persistent little nagging voice of, come on, Samson, you're, you're mocking me. Help me, Samson. Come, tell me, tell me, tell me. We've all been there, and we've all done it to other people. We've whined in hopes that now they'll listen. In fact, whining presents one response for me. I ignore it. If you're fine, because sometimes an animal might whine if they're hurt or in danger. I totally get it. And so you double check, okay, nothing's wrong. They're just alone, and now they're just having a hissy fit. I imagine she had that same kind of attitude coming to Samson the third time. So he tells her, still in verse 13, if you weave seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Samson's getting close. He's giving a little bit of hint. Remember, his strength lies in the fact that he does not consume alcohol, that he's not supposed to touch dead bodies, corpses, because of his Nazarite vow that his parents made on his behalf, and he's not supposed to cut his hair ever. And at this time, he's probably in his 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s. That's a lot of long hair. No idea what he did with it, how he kept it up, how he cleaned it, how he bound it, but I imagine it was a lot. But he's getting close. You take my hair, he tells Delilah, and you basically weave it. So he had enough hair to weave. That's, that's got to be hot in that type of climate. So 
while he slept in verse 14, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into a web, and she made them tight with a pin and said to him, now I'm a little surprised that he didn't wake up during this process, right? I mean, not that I've ever had that challenge, someone playing with my hair while I'm sleeping and noticing, but I imagine if you have hair and someone starts to pull, tug, weave it, and bind it and pin it, you might wake up, right? Yes. He's fast asleep. Fast asleep. Now I imagine in his mind, he's also thinking, there's nothing they can do to me. I can be as sound a sleeper as I want because no one's going to be able to touch me, hurt me, or in any way harm me. And he might have been awake the entire time thinking, I got her for another night and lied. I'm going to be totally fine. So he wakes up. As he slept, Delilah did this, and he says, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled out the pin, the loom, and the web. So it almost sounds like there was a, a weaver's loom somewhere in the room, and she just wove his hair into that loom instead of using the wool and the silk, just wove it into that, and he just broke free of that like nothing happened. And again, no sign of the guys. They hightailed it out of there. Then she said to him in verse 15, how can you say, oh, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. I might have missed the part where they were in love. I don't know. I'm pretty sure she was not in love with him. She's doing this for one reason. What's the one reason she's doing this? 1,100 pieces of silver, money. And what's the one reason he's doing this? Out of love? No, because he cannot keep his eyes front and center. He keeps wandering, and his heart gets him into lustful trouble time and time again, twice in just one chapter. There's no love here, but she plays the love card. If you love me, you will do this. If you love me, you will do this. Please, if anyone says to you, the motivation for you to do something, if you love me, you will do this, there's manipulation happening. Love should motivate us to help people, but if someone has to say that, there's a lot deeper problems in your relationship than just that one single event. Never play. If you love me, well, I love you. But that's what she's playing. Then we have another section. So we've had three times in which Samson has simply just pushed away Delilah's advances and kept his secret safe. But now we have verse 16, pretty much through the middle of the chapter. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. You want to know how to kill Samson? Everywhere you go. Samson, how do I keep your strength? How do I get your strength? How do I bind you? How do, how do we gain victory over you? Samson, 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 you love me, love me, love me? Non-stop to the point where Samson goes, I'd rather die. You have vexed me, frustrated me, pestered me, nagged me. And we all can do that, can't we? If you think, if I just keep at it, if I keep at it. In fact, doesn't Scripture tell us to be persistent? I'm just being persistent. Totally different. 
than nagging someone to the point of being vexed to death day after day. This wasn't just a one-time event. Samson, the eyes of lust are definitely much stronger than your reasoning because your reasoning should have told you this is not a healthy relationship. Run! But Samson kept her day after day after day. And then in verse 17, he told her with all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. I would have thought she would have been able to figure that one out, but a razor has never touched my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her with all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me with all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks on his head, and she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know these terrifying words that the Lord had left him. His strength, the Lord never leaves his children in a sense of abandoning them, but his presence in his life that gave him the strength, the spirit of the Lord that had come upon him was removed. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with a bronze shackle. And he ground at the mill in prison. But the hair of his head began again to grow after it had been shaven. You know what his job was? He was a donkey. He basically walked around in a circle turning a millstone so that the Philistines would have flour. The judge of Israel, the mighty one of God, humbled, tormented, abused, enslaved. Just like the people of Israel had been enslaved for 40 years by the hand of the Philistines. Now their shining hope in Samson, who had shown moments of great victory over the Philistines, who had never been caught surprised or defeated, is now living in torment. Just the visualness of it, no pun intended, of his eyes being gouged out and being humiliated to act as a job of an animal. Nothing brings you closer to God quicker than when you've hit rock, rock bottom. Now, I think Samson could have turned to the Lord many times in prayer during his life, every time he faced temptation, but he gave into it. Every single time we have recorded, he gave into that temptation. But we are given a clue, a glimmer of hope at the very end when the writer of the book of Judges says, and his hair began to grow back. Something's happening there in Samson, and it's not just physical. 
Something happens in him spiritually in this next moment. And in the closing section of verses, we see Samson's final repentance and his final victory. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dragon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, that's code word for they were drunk, when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. What? what what's he going to do? A magic trick? A song and dance? He, he's blind. He has no strength. He's, he has no entertainment value except to ridicule Samson. And when they're ridiculing Samson, who are they also ridiculing? The God whom Samson represents, Yahweh, who they feel they've gained absolute victory over Yahweh, the covenantal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenantal God who gave Israel all that land to possess. They now feel superior. Their God is superior to Yahweh, Jehovah. So they said, Let, call Samson in that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he entertained them and made him stand between the pillars. Whew, if you know the end of the story, that's a huge mistake, but let's keep going. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, young man who controlled this mighty warrior Samson, a young man, one of no physical strength, just a young kid, means a younger teen teenager, so someone maybe not even out of... Uh, not even in their teenage years. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords and the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 30,000, or excuse me, 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. They were ridiculing him, probably spitting on him, slapping him, mocking him, making jokes. Who hits you? Who hits you? Who hits you? Maybe that gives you a little sense of what Christ went through when the Romans struck him and he was their object of entertainment. And then Samson called to the Lord and said, this beautiful moment of repentance. The Lord is always near to hear the cries of his people. Always near. You are never too far away. You are never too far gone for the Lord not to hear you and pay attention and answer. Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged, that I may avenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed that moment at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Estel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years.
I want to move on to our take home. Freedom cost Samson greatly. Freedom from the oppression of the Israelites and freedom from his own sin when he cried out to God. It cost him a remembrance of all those past failures which are written in God's word for eternity and from the oppression of slavery. It cost Samson his life. In John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, a few verses I want to read in closing. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word and truly are my disciples, and you, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered, We are offspring of Abraham and never have been enslaved to anyone. Oh, what? You're the offspring of Abraham. Your whole history is basically you've been slaves. So, for whatever reason, they're, they're denying their true history. They didn't even remember the story of Samson, let alone Moses and the time in Egypt. And pretty much every time since the fall of David and Solomon. But, whatever they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, in bondage to sin, just like Samson, in bondage to that lust in his eyes and heart, in bondage to it. He could not, with all the strength of the Lord upon him, gain victory over that by himself. He'd fall time and time again. And so Jesus says, if you practice sin, you are a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever, Jesus speaking of himself. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you still seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, and you do what you have heard from your father. And that's not God he's referring to. It's the father, the prince of this world, Satan. But the key in there is not that. The key in the take-home moment in that is that Jesus Christ alone offers freedom, not from the oppressors that we face in this world, not from corrupt politicians or a mean boss or a crappy marriage. No, he offers freedom from sin. Sin, the one slave that no man can conquer, the one slave, the one enemy that no army can battle. That one enemy that no technology has a way of overcoming. The one enemy that you can never beat on your own. Jesus says, I can offer you that freedom. I can set you free. I can break the bonds that hold you tight. I can break the cycle of sin in your life. And I would call upon you, if there is a cycle of sin in your life, if there is something that you are struggling with, and I have no time to list all of them, but just figure out one of the ten, 
If you're struggling with one of those Ten Commandments and it is beating you up and you are feeling guilty inside and you feel enslaved to it, I guarantee you this very moment, if you cry out to God like Samson did and say, Lord, help, God's answer will be, yes, my son, my daughter, I will bring you freedom. And when he says, it is because I love you, you can go to the bank with a guarantee that that love is not a misspoken deception, but it is proof that history in Christ wins out. That is what this table is all about. And as the elders come forward to help us celebrate this meal, and the band can come as well, I want you to seriously, before you all kind of come to the middle and walk down, take a moment and ask the Lord, Lord, is there a sin that I am struggling with that you want to remind me of that I need to deal with today? And you can leave it here today by crying out to God saying, help. Help my unbelief. Help my struggle. Help gain victory over this enemy. I need your strength, Lord. Let's pray. Our good Father, you have granted us a moment in which we can repent of our sins and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness as far as the east is from the west. You will forgive us, Father, and you will remove that slavery from our lives, establishing real and true freedom. Father, as we partake in this meal together called communion, this unity meal, Lord, may we be mindful that it cost your son his life that we might gain freedom. And it is a freedom that no man can take away. That freedom is eternal. And for that, Lord, all of your people praise you. And we all say, Amen.